0: From the Southern Oral History Program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, this is Press Record, the podcast about the joys and challenges of learning history by talking to those who lived it. I'm
1: Rachel Seifman. And I'm Carol Prince. So we're back. We are back after two special editions of Press Record, Flying Solo. It's been great to be back hosting with you, especially considering today's topic,
0: Women in Politics.
1: This was a really rewarding and kind of healing episode to put together. Considering recent political events. Which we probably won't go into today. Definitely not. Well, maybe not definitely. (laughs) Maybe not. But, uh, you know, there are no shortage of clips, thankfully, in the SOHP's archive dealing with women involved in politics in all kinds of ways.
0: Definitely. The archive is full of women talking about running for political office, holding political office, voting, organizing their communities. Yeah, it
1: was it was really tough to narrow down. Um, probably have enough material to do, like, three episodes on women in politics. Um, and I want to give a shout out to field scholar Taylor Livingston, who we'll hear from in just a second. Um, who mined the archive working on her own project.
0: Yeah, it seems like everyone's talking about women in politics recently. There was a public forum at the Carolina Women's Center on women and gender issues in politics that you went to and recorded, right?
1: Right. Uh, We'll hear a little bit about that today. And, you know, it made me feel really hopeful. Um, But we'll hold off until later in the podcast to really... Get into it, and you are going to moderate a panel too. Right? Yes,
0: I am moderating a panel about reflecting on the election. A discussion about gender and politics at Duke University. There we
1: go. We just broke rule number one. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. We almost made it through. Like, yeah. <laughs> no. I mean, I think we can't. um You know, we're doing an episode on women in politics, so obviously it's going to speak to the election. But um, hopefully, we'll have some fun with the archives. It's time to have some fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> there is, um, there's so much to talk about. So let's get started. Who's up first? So I thought we'd start the conversation about women in politics in the beginning of the 20th century with women talking about exercising their right to vote right when they gained it for the very first time. And I talked to Taylor Livingston about a project she's been working on with These interviews.
0: And then, after your conversation with Taylor, I thought we'd look back into our archives and listen to a few excerpts where women talk about why they decided to run for office, which will segue maybe into that forum you went to on women and gender issues in politics. That sounds great. So you sat down with Taylor, who's been on
1: press record
0: before. She's a frequent flyer.
1: Frequent flyer and fellow resident unapologetic feminist field scholar. So
0: let's hear this conversation about oral history and suffrage.
1: So, Taylor, let's talk a little bit about your recent project on first-time women voters.
2: So I wrote an article for the South Rate right large which is a magazine that sort of broadly touches on any aspects of the global South. And their fall issue they just released that people should definitely go check out because there are lots of other good, interesting articles in there, it has to do with First. And so since it was around election season and this was the first time that we had a major party female running as president on the ticket. Um, that it would be interesting to use some oral histories from our archives to talk about suffrage and how women got the right to vote, but also first-time women voters um, having to do with Post the 1920 uh, passage of the 19th Amendment and also having to do with the first time African-American women voted because lots of African-American women were not able to vote until after the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1965 due to Jim Crow laws in the South.
1: Absolutely. So how far back do some of these interviews go then?
2: So, the interviews with the suffragettes were conducted in the 1970s by Constance Myers, um, and it's part of our series on Southern politics um, having to do with Southern women. And she interviewed these women who were born before, who were born in the late 1800s and were really involved in the movement, which is one of the things I think that are really interesting about these oral histories is that when you know the history of women and the suffrage at movement, you don't really think of that as being something that was particularly Southern. I just thought that that's such a, a really good example of the work that oral history does and reincorporating voices into shift the focus, I think, from where we usually hear the story, thinking about big individuals in the movement who are rightly so incredibly important. You know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Susan B. Anthony, Alice Paul, but also thinking about the work that people in these southern towns did and where, you know, people in general in America were not so interested in giving women the right to vote, but particularly in these more conservative areas of the country.
1: So let's play one of these clips. Um, let's play your favorite clip from Eulalie Sally.
2: So just to set up, this is just very interesting interview. I encourage everyone to go listen to the full the full thing Um, and she speaks about how she became involved in the suffragette movement Um, and it's a pretty salacious story and she tells the story of the the Tillman case of um, a woman who was her friend who wanted to be involved in the suffragette movement in in South Carolina in Aiken where uh, Miss Sally lives.
3: Well the feeling was so great when we organized that suffrage club here in Aiken was so many men forbade their wives to attend the meetings to join and one man told his wife now I'll kill you if you join them suffragists and she slipped off one day and she said I'm going to join anyhow She said, I don't trust that husband of mine. She said, he might deed my children away any day. I said, well, according to the South Carolina law, he can do it.
2: And at the time, uh, property rights were such that in cases of divorce, most often, and interestingly enough, still the case, if if men ask for it, um, children went to their fathers. And she would have had no legal rights to her children.
3: One day she came in. Eyes were all red. Oh. Face was all bruised up. She said to him, I said, what's the matter with you? Well, she said, after the last meeting, I went home and my husband beat me up. Mm-mm. Now, what would you advise me to do? Well, I said it's plain enough. If he was my husband, I would either shoot him or poison him. He says thank you, Miss and walked out of the office. Well, I didn't think anything more about it.
0: In a way, you were joshing.
3: No, I wasn't. You were serious. No, I meant it. Yeah. I, I tell you, I had the strongest feeling about it. Yeah. I think I was ready to shoot any man who do that. Mm-hmm. I had two children that I love very much. Yeah. And, and if my husband <laughs> had tried to take him, I would have killed him in a minute. Yeah. So, uh, the next moment, she... I picked up the paper, and I was just horrified. I saw where he'd gone out on a trip and come in, she'd given him a glass of buttermilk, and he had—he was overheated, and he keeled over and died. Hmm. Goodness gracious. Well. Mm -hmm. well served him right she came in the next day, two days after, long black there, she said have you heard of my bereavement I said your bereavement I said I heard of your good fortune (laughs) she said what would you advise me to do I said, just between you and me, I advise you to leave town as quick as you can. (laughs) Did she? She left.
2: Did
3: Uh she? I haven't seen that
1: woman since.
2: She leaves town, and you, lately, Sally, never sees her again.
1: Wow. So, what did we make about this, in terms of thinking about this as one of about um, women in politics.
2: Right. What we can make of it is that it shows us how difficult it was to be a woman at the at the turn of the century and also the willingness that women within the movement what they were willing to risk and give up in order to fight for their rights of citizenship and for the ballot.
1: So, to go back to something you said, it sounds like the most most of these interviews that were connected in the 70s with suffragettes were with with white women, right? Yes, yes. So let's talk a little bit about the interviews we have Mm -hmm. with African-American women. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose this specific interview to feature?
2: With African-American women, we can see um, in the clip of Viola Turner, who speaks about registering to vote in Durham in the Jim Crow South, and she tells the story of a man at the polls who was there registering voters. And in order to be able to vote, she had to read a a passage of the Bible.
4: We walked down there. There sits a man with his book and then his Bible. I believe it was a Bible. Maybe I'm wrong. But at any rate, a book seems to me it was a Bible. So he hands you that to read. That's no sweat. I read what he said. And what it said, and uh, so then he lets me put, uh, gives me, you know, the privilege of registration. He writes my name down and uh, address and whatever else goes with it. Next girl comes up, gives the book, she reads, and he says to her, "That's not correct." I think it's about the third. I think two of us got by before he questioned, but at any rate. When he questioned her, he tells her the word she's mispronounced. And would you believe it, you would never know. You'd never recognize that word. So he reads the sentence, and you've never heard such reading in your life. From somebody who's sitting up there telling you you can't read. That's right. Well, I... I just sat stood there looking well she did go back, and she did get registered uh later. Mr. sort sorted that, but what I would like for you or anybody else to have been present to hear that man read and hear the word that he called her on, hear what he called it. We snickered all the way back to the building as soon as we got out of his office. Because it tickle us to death, and uh, of course you know we were laughing, but we were indignant, mad as we could be, the idea. And of course the girl was uh, embarrassed in there, but when she got on the outside and <laughs> when we got through with it, she was she was just ready to go back and and do it again when she got it. But now that was how you got rich to be in Durham at that time. Somebody that uh, they either couldn't say no to or uh, there was somebody, they had some pool somewhere, and then they took you down personally. Yes, uh, That old rascal couldn't read a lick himself, but he did that to us.
1: So how does this oral history interview give us kind of a different look at first-time women voters in the South?
2: What she notices is that the man who's actually controlling the literacy test is not literate himself. Um, but... Because he's white, he's able to vote and hold this position of power. And she also notes that one of the reasons that all of these women were sort of galvanized to vote has to do um, with Mr. Spalding, who was the president of the NC Mutual Life Company, which is part of Black Wall Street in Durham. And he was this large community figure and very prominent Durhamite. And even the reason that he's even entertaining and it... I guess pretending to administer this literacy test has to do with the fact that C.J. Spalding is there overseeing this um, registration and making sure that his employees who work for him are are able to vote.
1: What is, you know, one takeaway that you... Feel you have now from doing this project, and that people can take away from listening to oral histories with first-time women voters.
2: So I think one of the things that people can take away from these oral histories um, has to do with the the individual struggles of these women and the the massive odds they were up against for for fighting for the rights to have the ballot, and then you can hear the difficulties of. Of that some period that people experience getting the ballot. So major takeaways from that. So one, we get to see the difficulty of registry of of gaining the ballot, whether it be for um, the fight for suffrage or the writing to vote in the Jim Crow South. Okay, so everybody, go check out. Taylor
1: Livingston's article on the South writ large, on first-time women voters, and all the full interviews mentioned here will be on our website. And they're linked in the article. And they're linked in the article. All right. Thanks so much, Taylor. Thank you. You're welcome. So we
0: just heard some pretty incredible stories from when women were first getting the right to vote. Um, But there's so much in our collection that's so great. And so I thought it would be interesting to listen to some more from the archives and talk about what oral history can tell us about why women not just vote, but decide to run for office.
1: Right. So we have three clips here from first-time women politicians who were also firsts in other historic ways. And you'll hear from a
0: member of a state legislature, a mayor, and a member of the House of Representatives.
1: Yes, so the first clip that you'll hear is from Grace Towns Hamilton, who was the first African-American woman to be elected to the Georgia State Legislature in 1965. And she was really involved in making sure both the public and private sector complied with the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And here she's talking about how she entered politics.
4: I just happened to be in a district when, when, after the reapportionment plan was approved in 65, and we knew that there were going to be 24 places where before there'd been just three. And there was, uh, many people, I think, began saying, you know, where would there be, where is there somebody that ought to offer for the House? And uh, when we were looking at the maps, I was, was making a list of, of, another colleague of mine said, takes credit for having suggested, I was talking with him, he's Representative Doherty, who had offered for public office before, and I was talking to him about who ought to run. He said, well, why on don't, don't you, <laughs> which just came as something I just never had thought about before, <laughs> and, and I did.
0: So next is Isabella Cannon, who ran for mayor of Raleigh, North Carolina, in 1977, after living there since the 1930s. She was elected the first woman mayor at age 73, and here she is talking about why she ran.
5: I look at the fact that I am the only woman mayor of Raleigh in almost 200 years of history. Unless a woman declares this year and will go on to the two hundred, as being the only woman who has ever offered herself. You see, it's not just that the citizens can elect a woman. A woman has to offer herself. Now, it never occurred to me as anything historic when I did it. I was just a furious, angry citizen, and I wanted to see something done. I was not running as a female or as an older citizen. I was just running as somebody mad about what was happening and I felt like I could do something about it. So the identification as a woman or as an older citizen was not there in my thinking at that time. In fact nobody knew how old I was not because I was ashamed but because I never thought about it and when it came out that I was 73 it was total shock to people. Oh, I didn't know you were that old you know. And uh, through the newspaper every time they put my name down put my age beside it. Uh, Women have got to take more leadership roles. And um, women need themselves to have more confidence in themselves, be longer in the pipeline, be longer in the business community, be more active in the political community.
1: Um, Um, So I really enjoyed this clip for a lot of reasons, but what do you make of it? These are two really telling clips because what
0: Cannon is saying is what all the recent research shows as well, that in terms of getting equal representation in those who hold political office, it's actually getting women to run that's the biggest hurdle. Once they run, nowadays at least, they generally do as well as men in terms of winning Getting them to run is the hard part. Grace Hamilton mentions this as well. She'd never thought of running, and it took a colleague she respected to suggest to her that she run. That's exactly what research today shows is critically important.
1: That's really interesting because I feel like um, what you were saying about the research of women doing as well as men once they're actually in the race, maybe it's, you know— Either this idea that women somehow don't belong in politics or a false idea that they wouldn't fare as well as men, keeping them from, from getting involved, like create this this loop where women don't don't run. It is. It's a bit of a catch-22.
0: And actually that's part of why a lot of people are doing this research because they want the word to get out there to show women that, in fact, if they run nowadays, they have a really good chance of winning and they need to sort of... Put behind them this idea that it, that they don't, um, because that is part of what keeps them from running in the first place.
1: I think that's really interesting. I mean, especially like we talked a lot, heard a lot in the election about the glass ceiling, and I think, I mean, looking at you know both these women that ran later in life at the local and state level, and and won, and they did and really well, and you see these you know kind of little victories, um, you know, over over the the past couple decades and listening to these oral histories about women reflecting on that initial, oh, why not me? Mm-hmm. Of course I can do it, mm-hmm. um, is really telling.
0: Yeah, uh, I hope that recent events don't make us all think differently <laughs> about this all, all
1: of this research. So our final clip is from Eva Clayton, who along with being involved in the civil rights movement and community development in the 1970s and 1980s, She was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1992. And she and another representative elected that same year were the first African Americans elected to the U.S. House from North Carolina in the 20th century. And that really blew my mind.
0: Yeah, they were the first elected since uh, the end of Reconstruction um, when there had been black representatives, and then there weren't any more until... 92. 1992. basically a hundred
6: years later right the story I tell is they're looking for a good man to run, and no good man um, volunteered um, but a very good woman volunteered and that's real I did not go there I mean, seeking to run you know it just it made it made some sense now I was interested obviously i just wouldn't have volunteered it was something that over uh, the period of time working in voter registration and supporting my husband and knowing that he would have served well and in the right reasons for wanting to serve, I had had a, a young son. So I had this time on my hand. You know how boredom <laughs> you think you can do more in your time? So, <laughs> I, so I guess having the time, temptation of time, having the interest, and no one else picking up a challenge. Uh, I decided to run. And that was a good experience for me because uh, you know it was a big difference from he- helping your husband run for the s- state legislature, working on voter registration, and helping to file uh, complaints to the justice department, or you know doing briefs for the defense fund, than trying to talk about issues that affect a whole congressional. So it was a, it was a steep lear- learning mm-hmm. curve and mm-hmm. then I had to learn the geography because mm-hmm. again I'm from somewhere else out of the state. So I had to learn the people, learn the geography and the issues right. all at the same time with very little money. So it was a it was a good experience, it didn't win but it did well, it did well for whatever mm-hmm. that meant in terms of having a good experience. It enabled people though who were engaged with me to begin to see their potential for leadership. So people. Who were ex- excited about this potential of, of this person running? It had to be a force where, in local communities, you saw, saw people attempt and many of them succeed in local election or school board, county commissions, or city council. So, you had the beginning, if you start looking after 1968, uh, after people got e- experience in one, it translates into others and certainly the laws were on your side. You, you could bring in the marshals. Uh, uh, the Justice Department was, was there, made itself so vividly in terms of people saying, that if you had any problems in registering, let us know. Any problems in actual voting? So you felt empowered by this newfound participation. And people use that uh, experience, I think, in a meaningful way. And, and then they, if you check the registration, prior to 1968, and you look at the registry of 1969, you you can see a decisive uh, uh, difference in what we started out with and what we ended up with.
0: We have a few interviews with Representative Clayton. Why did you choose this one?
1: I chose this one because I think the story about the first time that she ran in 1968 and didn't win um, is really important because, you know, it shows that you know, she knew that just running would have an effect on other women uh, and African-Americans being able to like see themselves in a leadership position. Um, You know, she talks about, this wasn't in the clip that we aired, you know, a woman who had worked on her campaign and, you know, decided to run for school board and won. And um, it's, you know, really about people seeing their own potential in local communities so that by the time that she runs again in 92 and wins, um, that race in 1968 paved the way for you know, a whole other generation of leadership.
0: I know we said we weren't going to talk <laughs> about the election. but
1: <laughs> We already broke that rule, well, yeah, so it's okay. And
0: this is just so powerful in that way because one of the things that was so um, powerful about Hillary Clinton's run for office was were all those pictures of the little girls you know um going with their parents to vote and uh thinking and all those parents who were thinking about what it would mean for their children for their girls in particular to see a woman in the white house and what kind of impact that could have on um young people's sense of their own potential and you know we know, we know that that is um that that is important, and that there's a way in which people represent their um, constituencies in terms of what they vote for and how, you know the the public policies that they pass and those kinds of things. But they also represent symbolically, and that for people to see someone who looks like them or seems like them in some important way uh, is is important in in terms of how people imagine their own potential. Absolutely.
1: So in that same vein, I thought we would round up the podcast with some clips from just a few weeks ago with women talking about politics. This
0: was at a public forum on women and gender issues in politics hosted by the Carolina Women's Center, right?
1: Yes. So to say the E-word, this was before the election. (laughs) Just to give some context, um, there were four panelists Two of them were um, professors of public policy and of um, comparative politics or politics and government. Um, One was an undergraduate student. One was a member of a nonprofit organization, NC for ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, which we'll talk about in a second. And they were talking about changes and policy that they'd like to see at the local, state, and federal level regarding women and gender.
0: So specifically, what kinds
1: of issues came up? Oh my gosh, a whole range of issues. Um, Health care, childcare, care, uh, sex education and access to contraception, equal pay, paid leave, hiring discrimination, all sorts of um, intersecting issues.
0: There were some really interesting comments about how women are thinking about coalition building today, too.
1: So on that note, I want to play a clip of the undergraduate student on the panel who was a student at UNC and was talking about the interconnectedness of policy uh, and what that means for women.
7: A few of these issues are all kind of connected together, Um, education, sexual health, sexual assault, um, and it just goes to show that all of these issues, and especially in policy,
2: cannot ever be restricted to one area, whether it be economic policy, is social policy, is health policy, is every other kind of policy. You can't ever think about uh, the way people receive health insurance without, without um, the way that people are employed, without the way people are discriminated in employment, the way people receive benefits from employment, or if there are no benefits to be offered. And there, it is impossible to, you know, to separate those because there, is no, there are, people don't separate their lives like that.
0: So what do the panelists have to say about where we go from here? Are we going to have to wait for a woman president to make sure women have full equality?
1: So Dr. Benjamin, uh, one of the panelists, talked about this, um, especially there was a question from the audience about this person asked if Hillary was elected, which we now know isn't the case, you know, would she, you know, be the champion for women?
8: Rebecca's point. I don't know how many appeals a female candidate, a woman candidate, can really make to women. Um, it's almost like a little wink and a nod, right? You think about the endorsements that she's given. You think about the policies that she's that she's advocating for. And this is at any level, right? State level. You know, maybe we have that for our for the governor or whatever, senate. But to 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 think that the person who's running, especially given their own physical representation of that group, is going to just come out and say, "Oh, as soon as I get the White House, it's this, it's that." That's you have a problem. And it's, it's backlash is real, right? And so I, I don't know that what we can expect of, of any woman candidate. And, again, I don't know what the unified women's, right? Like, I don't know that there's a unified women's agenda. I think that we, you know, all women would agree, yes, I would like to make the same pay. How do we go about doing that? That might be where we come into some conflict. Or, yes, I would like to see better access to health care. Again, the route by which, right? So it's hard to think about what's the unified um, what, what's what's that stage three that's gonna unify and if you you might not unify everybody
0: so Carol final concluding thoughts on women in politics
1: I don't know after this election cycle I still feel like I have a lot of processing to do but this has helped <laughs> definitely <laughs>
0: yeah this this um, we are all processing and it it, it has felt really good to to um, dig into the archives and pull out these voices to help us help us do that. I do think one of the things that's so interesting is to try to figure out, um, you know, as historians, we like to think about change over time. And um, we know that change doesn't always happen in a narrative of, uh, you know, always onward and upward progress. And this is definitely feeling like a moment when that Rings very true. Sometimes, though, taking the long view can help a little bit.
1: And it's a long view, but in so many ways it feels like some of those stories still feel so close. You know, things that, you know, women are encountering from domestic violence or trouble getting to the polls or not feeling like you can run, whether that's, you know, for mayor or for house representatives or for class president like that's still lingering for women who want to get involved in politics so for all of you
0: women out there for all you
1: ladies out there for all of
0: you (laughs) ladies out there we hereby tap you (laughs) get out there and run we need your voices i was
7: born with a water spine. and a perfect full night at three months he killed me dead And Umi brought me back to life but Don't she know she's a hero So I'm dead until I die When she said the sky is black
1: Thanks for listening to Press Record. Special thanks to Taylor Livingston for her research and input on this episode, as well as director of the Carolina Women's Center Gloria Thomas, Dr. Andrea Benjamin, Dr. Rebecca Kreitzer, Marina Grohl, and Malia Surin for sharing their thoughts with Press Record during their panel on women in politics. Thanks also to Leila Noor, whose music you heard featured on the podcast today. As always, we want to hear from you. You can subscribe and rate us on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you have thoughts on oral history and women in politics in the South, send us an email at pressrecordsohp at gmail.com. You can tweet the Southern Oral History Program at SOHP Oral History and like and comment on our Facebook page. Just search for Press Record Podcast. Stay tuned for our next episode. We'll be back in January. Until then, hope everyone has a restful holiday season and thanks again for listening. See you next time on Press Record.
7: When I was just a little child, yeah. I somehow figured out that I was born to change the world yeah. and she would show me how. Thanks to her, I was fed with love. So I'm dead until I die. When she laughs, I see the guy.